Well, today we're uh, wrapping up our series on Fellowship Oshawa's values. We've been uh, talking about our values for the past six weeks. Uh, we have uh, five values here as a church. Uh, we value, and you'll see them up on the little uh, screen back there, we value the Bible, risk-taking faith, selfless hospitality, people, and multiplication. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about the last one on that list, multiplication. Uh, and as I was preparing you know, I could have preached a sermon from maybe the book of Acts, looking at a story at the, of the early church, of, of how the early church multiplied, and, and I could have, we could have talked about how we can multiply disciples and churches together. Uh, but as I prayed, I, I felt God leading me in a different direction, and like He wanted us to go in a di- different direction this morning. I, I felt like we needed a reminder this morning, not how to multiply, but that God will multiply His church, that He will keep His promises. Multiplication is a value of ours because we believe it's God's value. Now, from the beginning, God commanded humanity uh, to be fruitful, fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. And he told Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. So God is in the business of filling the earth with people from every tribe and tongue and nation who worship him and reflect his image. But it doesn't always feel like that's happening. In fact, a lot of times we can look around and feel like God isn't really working around us at all. And as I read this passage this week that we're going to look at, uh, I I knew that this was God's word for us this morning, especially the first three verses. We're going to look at Isaiah 54, 1 to 10, but I just want you to listen. You don't need to put it on the screen yet. I just want to read the first three verses of Isaiah 54. Just listen to this. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities." This is a word for those of you who feel tired. This is a word for those of you who feel that God can't use you. This is a word for those of you who think that you've blown it or that you've missed out on God's purpose for your life. This is a word for those of you who feel like all of your work and your labor has been in vain. And this is a word for our church. Now, church planting is hard. Ministry is hard. And while cosmetically on the outside things might look okay in our neighborhood around us, we know that there is deep spiritual healing that needs to take place. The main message for today is this. This is how I would summarize it in one sentence. Even in the midst of a barren season, God's promise to multiply his people still stands. Even in the midst of a barren season, God's promise to multiply his people still stands. I want to give you a little bit of background for this passage that we're going to look at in Isaiah chapter 54. This passage was written in the 7th century B.C., so at least 700 years before Jesus came. It was written by Isaiah, a prophet of God, to the people of Israel who were living in exile in Babylon. So uh, exile is something that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, and it's difficult for us to, to really fully understand what that would have been like. So I want you to imagine that, that you are torn from your home 
from your homeland, from your home country, from a hostile people. And, and foreigners move in, they move into your house, they take your stuff, they take over your stuff, and you're shipped off to another place, a strange place. You don't speak the language, you don't know the customs, you don't know the food, the smells, the sights, the sounds, they're all unfamiliar. There's no plane ticket home. Home is gone. You don't have a home anymore. This was Israel's reality. This was the people of Israel's reality. And this is the reality, the situation into which God speaks. Listen to what he says. Let's read the whole passage. Isaiah 54, 1 to 10. Uh, Isaiah is pretty much right in the middle of your Bible. Uh, you've got Bibles on the desk in, or on the tables in front of you if you need one, and it'll also be on the screen behind me. Isaiah 54, 1 to 10. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtain of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed says the Lord who has compassion on you. So Isaiah calls Israel barren one. That's his people, okay? He calls his people barren one, and he compares them to a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. That's a bad place to be. Now, having children was considered a sign of God's favor in Near Eastern culture, all right? Children, here's the reason children equaled wealth and power and success. The more children you had, the more people you had to work your farmland, the more protection and security you had, okay? And so it's hard for us to appreciate this today, to, to feel it the way that a Middle Easterner in 700 BC would, but uh, may, if you've ever been through infertility, you, you'd be able to relate to the pain uh, of the situation in a pretty real way. Uh, but this barrenness in ancient culture was, it was a sign of removal of God's favor, it was a sign of shame, of inadequacy. It was uh, seen as, as a lack of dignity. Being a barren woman who'd been sent away by her husband, essentially that translated to worthlessness. Now I imagine they heard insults like, 
Where's this God of yours who's supposed to make you into a great nation? I'm sure the people of Babylon that had taken them into captivity were like, where's your God now? How come he hasn't delivered you? Look at you now. And this is nothing new for God's people. I'm sure they had their doubts about whether God was going to actually keep his promises to save his people and to make them into a great nation. It sure didn't seem like he was going to at the time. And we've all been there. I've been there. I think I'm probably there at some time or another on a weekly basis. Now, I've felt like a failure before, and let me tell you, nothing can make you humbler than trying to start a church. I try to be fruitful, and yet at times it seems like nothing really happens, like I'm not really making a difference. Will God keep his promises? Is his hand really on my life? Have I blown it because of my sin? Now, those are all questions that I've asked before. It's easy to question whether we're doing something wrong, and it's tempting to wonder if somehow maybe we've messed up God's plan for our lives. And it's very possible that Israel was wondering the same thing, wondering if they had blown it, because after all, they were in exile because of their own disobedience. And in fact, 2 Chronicles 36, 15 to 16 tells us exactly why they were in exile. It says, uh, it says this, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. As individuals, we've had lots of failures. As a church, as a whole, we've had lots of failures. But what is God saying to us now? I don't want us to think about the failures of the past this morning. I want us to ask, what is God saying to us right now this morning? What is God saying to you this morning? And I believe that what God wants to say to us this morning is this. Even in the midst of a barren season, my promise to multiply my people still stands. And so what I want to do is I want to give you three points from this text that I think support that message, that I think tell us that that is true and that's what God's saying. Here's the three points that I want to give you. I, I want us to look at what is God saying. I want us to look at what the God who speaks is like and what the God who speaks has already done. So we're going to look at what is God saying, what is this God who speaks like, and what is this God who speaks already done. All right. So first, what has God said? So God gives some startling commands in the first four verses of this text. He says things like sing, enlarge, fear not. I mean, look at, look at verse 1 again. He, he speaks, he's speaking to his people who are in exile in this miserable place, and he says, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Now, the natural question that comes up at this point is, what's there to sing about? Perhaps you're wondering the same thing in your life right now. I don't have anything to sing about. Maybe you're not really in the singing mood this morning. I mean, is there anything more annoying than a chipper person loudly singing when there's nothing to sing about, especially in the morning? Or is that just me? Even though Israel is still in exile, God tells them to sing for joy. 
And the reason that God tells them to sing for joy is this. He says, the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Now, this is a good time to pause and ask the question. Here's the question to ask. Are God's promises so real to you that you can sing for joy over them before they've even been fulfilled? Are God's promises so real to you that you can sing for joy over them before they've even been fulfilled? And that one punches me in the gut. I don't know about you, but that's exactly what God tells us to do in this passage. Israel is still barren. They're still in exile. They don't feel free. They don't feel vindicated. How tempting is it to trust our feelings over what God says, isn't it? Just like the Garden of Eden, the serpent, he's been doing this since the beginning. He loves to come up to us and say, did God really say, did God really say this? Next, God doesn't just start with, uh, stop with that. He doesn't just tell them to sing. He says, basically, add on to your house. Start making additions. Build more rooms because you're going to need it. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. So God is saying, start building bigger houses because you're not going to have enough room. You're about to multiply. You're going to need more space. So you better start building now. As I read this passage earlier this week, I knew that God was saying to us, this is, for, this is for Fellowship Oshawa. This is my word for Fellowship Oshawa. Uh, our friends Megan and Nathan just had a baby the day before yesterday. And uh, they, uh, when they found out that they were pregnant, uh, they had to make some changes to their home. Uh, they had an office slash storage space, you know, one of their rooms, and they had to make some changes to that room. They had to convert it into a nursery, right? So they had to move all the stuff out of there that they had stored. Couldn't be an office anymore. They started putting decorations up. There was a crib put in. The room was changed, right? They had to, they had to make preparations because God was about to add to their family. And God is telling barren Israel the same thing right here. He's saying, you're about to have a baby, the point is clear. God's people, the church, are created by supernatural birth. I want you to think about this. It's no accident that, that the mothers, uh, what we would call the mothers of the Israelites, okay, uh, which would be Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel were the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the first three in, uh, men that were in the line of Israel, okay? That's where the nation of Israel came from. And have you, ever, have you ever thought about the fact that all three of those women were barren? Did you ever catch that? The book of Genesis, all three of those women were unable to have children, and the only way they were able to have children was God supernaturally intervened and opened up their womb. That's not an accident. What God is telling us through that is that my people exist because I supernaturally brought them into existence and my people will multiply because I will supernaturally multiply my people. We best believe that if God has said that he's going to do something, he will do it no matter how impossible the circumstances might seem. Now, Fellowship Oshawa, we are a small church. We're a young church. The task around us is great. There's a lot of pain and there's a lot of brokenness in our city. Filling this city with 30 lighthouses can seem so distant. It can seem so far off. It can seem insurmountable. Seeing that friend that struggles with addiction 
be set free and learn to love Jesus can seem so impossible. The idea of being used by God when it's hard to even pray for 30 minutes can seem so far-fetched. But in the midst of this, God speaks. Enlarge your tents. Prepare to multiply. And then, just to drive home the reassurance, God says this. God says, and don't be afraid. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Shamed, confounded, humiliated, all those words are just synonyms of the same thing. Disgrace, disappointment. So what God is saying here is he's saying, don't fear being let down or disgraced in the presence of your enemy. You don't have to be afraid that I'm going to, whether or not I'm going to come through on my word. And this is such such a comforting word for me. Because I can't tell you how many times I've asked in fear, what if I fail? What if I let God down? And then comes the reminder You did not build this church, I did. You cannot lose what you didn't earn in the first place. Christians, we are weak. And I can tell you, if we try to multiply in our own strength, we will be ashamed. We will be confounded. But God graciously allows these barren seasons in our life to remind us that only He can save us. And only He can build His church. That's why God sent Israel into exile. You realize that, right? God didn't send Israel into exile to let off some steam. He wasn't being vindictive. He wasn't just going, okay, I'll show you guys. I'm just going to put you through some misery just to get even with you. Listen to Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14. This explains exactly why God sent Israel into this barren season. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, in other words, when you've been in exile in Babylon for 70 years, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me. With all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places from where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So, one of the the most misinterpreted verse in the entire Bible, I'm sure you've heard Jeremiah 29 11 before, God spoke that to Israel while they were in exile. That verse doesn't mean that you're not going to go through barren seasons. A lot of people think, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. People think that that means, well, God's not going to let anything bad happen to me. And so when they find themselves in a dry season, they go, well, God must not be real. Or God must be mad at me for my sin. Or I've messed up. Or I've done something to lose God's favor. Can I just tell you, you can't do anything to earn God's favor. God's favor is given by grace through Jesus Christ alone. 
Jeremiah 29, 11 comes in the midst of exile. God's plan for you is that you stop trusting yourself and seek him with all of your heart. And if he has to take you through a dry season to teach you that, he will. Even in the midst of a barren season, God's promise to multiply his people still stands. So who is this God who is saying these things? What is this God like? Well, verse five tells us that, that he's the holy one and the maker of all the earth. And that word holy is so important to our understanding of God. And essentially what that word means is it means that God is not like you and me at all. It, it, holy doesn't mean that he's a bigger, better version of you and me. It means that he's completely other than you and me. He transcends us. We can't even begin to be compared with him. He has his own category. Whereas we are bound up by the natural laws of space and time, God created space and time. There are some things, despite our best efforts, that we can't control. But God controls everything because he made everything. And that's good news for failures like me. Because that means I don't have to create abundance in a dry season. I don't have to do the impossible. God's not asking me and you to do the impossible. God will do it because God can. So how does this fact that God is holy give us assurance that his promise to multiply still stands in the midst of a barren season? Well, because he is the creator, he can do things like Isaiah chapter 43, 19. Listen to this. He says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Only the creator can do that. Now, Jesus often allowed his disciples to get into a pickle. You know, anybody know what that means in a pickle? A pickle means a, a tough spot, a tough situation. And he would often allow his disciples to get into these pickles. That word is funny. I'm sorry. One time, <laughs> one time Jesus sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee on a rickety wooden fishing boat, and he told them he'd catch up with them later. All right, And then uh, while they're out there, a severe storm rose up, a strong gale, and, and they began to be afraid that they were going to drown, and the boat was, was rocking back and forth, and, and, and they were really afraid. But then they saw Jesus walking up to them, walking on the water, and then they were even more afraid, because now they're not afraid of just the winds and the waves, they're afraid of Jesus because he's walking on water. And Jesus comes into the boat, and, and with a word, a simple command, he calms the wind and the waves, and they obey him. Now, Jesus could have just avoided this whole situation altogether, couldn't he? I mean, Jesus is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He could have just said, guys, I'm omniscient, and our weather app is clearly wrong. There's going to be a storm that's going to come across the sea here in just a little bit, so we better put off our trip. But Jesus purposefully sent his disciples into a storm. And there's one reason that Jesus did that. And it was to show his disciples that he's holy. Nature obeys him. He's not just a great man. He's the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth. God is going to allow barren seasons in your life. But without barren seasons we'd never see God make rivers in the desert. 
God is also our husband who has redeemed us. Verses 6 to 8 says, look at verses 6 to 8. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. And then he goes on to say, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I'll gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. So scripture oftentimes gives us pictures and illustrations to help us understand how God relates to us. And one common picture that scripture gives is the picture of marriage. And marriage is a covenant, and it's a picture of the relationship between God, between Jesus Christ and his people, the church. The New Testament calls the church the bride of Christ. And so the picture that we get of God's people in exile here is like a woman who's cheated on her husband, who's been found out and exposed, everybody knows it, and she's been sent away. She's been driven out. Her husband said, that's it, you unfaithful woman, out. And she's also unable to bear children. She's alone and out in the cold and has no one to blame but herself. And that's the picture that we get of Israel in exile. And this is what God says. God says, I'm going to buy you back. I can't stay angry at you. My love and my compassion towards you swallows up my anger at your infidelity. Now, the point of this is not to say that if you are in a barren season, it's because you've sinned. God is not standing over you with a hammer waiting to take away blessings every time you mess up. The gospel is, is that we get what we don't deserve. If we all got what we deserved, we'd all go straight to hell without pass and go or collecting $200. That's what we deserve. The point of this, these three verses is that God is passionately in love with his church. He can't resist her. He's passionately in love with his people. I love the way that Hosea chapter 11 verse 8 summarizes this. God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? Ephraim is just another name for Israel. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. That's what's amazing about the gospel. We've all been unfaithful to God. We've all cheated on him. What if you were married or you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you spent weeks not even talking to them? And when you did talk to them, you didn't listen. You just talked to them so that you could unload on them and tell them what you wanted them to hear. That's how many of us have treated God. And yet, God opens his arms to us and says, come home to me. And if he has done that, why would he not keep his promise to multiply his people, even in the midst of a barren season? A natural question that can come up here is why? Why would God do this when I don't deserve it? It's hard to believe that we can receive something when we don't think we've earned it, isn't it? In our society, we feel like we have to, to do our part. We can't, just, we can't just take something for free. A perfect illustration of this was uh, on Halloween night, we had uh, our Trunk or Treat Festival, uh, and we just we gave out a bunch of candy and everything like that, had a good time, gave out free coffee and hot chocolate, met a lot of the people in the community. And I had several people come up to me, but one, one woman in particular, uh, and, and offered me money. Uh, and she said, uh, 
and when she offered me the money, she said, um, you know, you guys can't just do this. We can't just let you do this all on your own dime. Here, please, I, I insist, you have to take something. And, and, and I was appreciative of it. I said, well, thank you so much. It's very kind of you. But it was interesting to me that, that, that some people feel like they can't take something for nothing. They have to do their part, right? We, I have to feel like I've earned this in some way. The answer to the question why is found in seeing what God has already done. That's the last part of our sermon. Look at verses 9 and 10. The Lord says, This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So God says, this is like the days of Noah to me. Now what's that all about? Why is he bringing Noah into this equation? Where did that come from? Well, the days of Noah, this harkens back to when God judged the world. If you'll remember in the story of Noah, okay, God saw that the wickedness uh, in men's heart was pervasive, that every single thought that man had was wicked. And, and Genesis 6 says that God was grieved that he had even made mankind, right? And so God decided, I'm going to start over, right? But Noah and his, his family found favor in the eyes of God. And so God spared Noah and his family and called Noah to build an ark. Right? And then God caused it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, and the, and the waters covered the earth. Right? And God flooded the earth. Okay? And so this, this image of waters, and we're going to talk about this next, next week when we look at the story of Jonah, but waters and stormy seas is constantly uh, in Scripture an image of judgment, of chaos, and of death. Okay? And so this harkens back to when God judged the world and saved a remnant. Right? And after that, if you'll remember... God saves Noah and his family. They come off the boat. And then what does God put in the sky? He puts a rainbow in the sky, right? And that word, the Hebrew word that for bow, it, it literally means war bow. God put his war bow. It was a weapon, right? So God put his war bow in the sky. And the war bow was pointed up at God. What did that mean? God was saying, no more am I going to destroy the earth with a flood, the wrath has been satisfied. My wrath has been satisfied. Justice has been done. So why does Isaiah put this in Isaiah chapter 54? Because there's a new covenant. Just as God made a covenant in Genesis chapter 11 with Noah that he would never again flood the earth, now there's a new covenant. And this new covenant is made possible by someone called the suffering servant. If you flip back a chapter and you look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it talks about the suffering servant. Here's what it says. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, this suffering servant that Isaiah talks about is none other, none other than Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ was the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. When those nails drove through his hands and through his feet, Jesus Christ took the wrath that we deserved. Just as the flood waters of God's judgment covered the earth in Genesis chapter 11, the flood waters of God's judgment were poured upon Jesus Christ in your place on the cross at Calvary. 
which is what makes this covenant of peace that God offers possible. It's why God can make peace with guilty sinners like you and like me. It's why God can make peace with his church. It's why he can forgive sinners. His church, his bride, who cheated on him. We can receive God's grace because the price has been paid. And the price was the precious blood of God's son shed for you, shed for his church. You see, even in the midst of a barren season, God's promise to multiply his people still stands. Even in the midst of his people's failures, God's promise to multiply his church still stands. Even in the midst of our weakness, God's promise to multiply his people still stands. And it will stand because he has paid a high price to keep his covenant to do so. So what are the implications for this word that we've heard today? Well, let's talk corporately. What does this mean for our church? Two things. First, it means that we are going to enlarge our tents. You know, a church doesn't start planning to plant more churches before it's even off the ground unless that church believes God promise, God's promise to multiply his people. We've enlarged our tents at Fellowship Oshawa by partnering with a network, the Fellowships Network, that has a vision to see 12 churches planted over the next 10 years in the Durham region. And we're going to enlarge our tents by raising up and by sending out leaders who will go and plant more churches and who, who will go as missionaries to the nations. We're going to send people out and we're going to be obedient and we believe that God's going to do it even when it doesn't look like it's possible, even in the midst of barren seasons. I believe that God is going to take and he's going to use this little church, he's going to use this ragtag bunch of disciples and he's going to do things greater than we could ever ask or imagine in the Durham region. We believe, we came here because we knew that God was going to do a work. We came here because we believe that God wants a revival to happen in the Durham region. There's brokenness here, but we believe that God wants to heal it, and we believe that God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wisdom of the wise, and that God will use the weak things of this world, weak little churches just like this one, because we've said, God, we're not gonna depend on your strength. We need you. And so we're gonna multiply. We're gonna enlarge our tents. We're gonna, we're gonna pray in expectation that God is going to do this. Secondly, we're going to keep telling people about this holy, compassionate God because we believe God will multiply his church in Durham. We're going to continue to love our neighbors and, and to faithfully share the gospel through the dry season because even in the midst of a dry season, of a barren season, God's promise to multiply his people still stands. I know it hasn't been easy, guys. And it won't be. I see your faithful labor. God sees it. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. What are the implications for us as individuals? There's one simple application I want you to make this morning. Be encouraged. I don't know if you're in the midst of a barren season right now, but if you aren't right now, you will be. 
Remember that changing circumstances don't change God. And he often disciplines us in the barren places so we can experience his miraculous provision of rivers of water in the desert. Lastly, if you're not a Christian, if you're not really sure that you're in the family of God, if all this sounds foreign to you, the step for you this morning is to respond to God's invitation to accept his mercy and join his family. Listen to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, the very next chapter, the very next verse. Here's what God says. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. I want you to know that no matter what you've done or where you've been this morning, if you are breathing and your heart is beating in this place, you are invited into God's covenant of peace. But the only way is through the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. We must turn from our sin and place our faith and our trust in him, asking him to forgive us of our sins, and he will. The invitation is urgent, but it's open to anyone and everyone, no matter who you are or where you've been. We're going to uh, go to a time here at Fellowship Osh, what we do after the service is we uh, get together with our tables and we go into a time of discussion, okay? And we're going to have a couple of discussion questions that are going to get thrown up on the screen behind me and we'll spend the next six to eight minutes just uh, talking through uh, what we just heard from God's word.